0: the other guy's down yelling at his grad students he doesn't have time to come to your stupid mentorship training
1: welcome to hello phd a podcast for scientists and the people who love them today on the show we share listener feedback from last week's show and there was a lot and discuss how to mentor our mentors stay with us
0: we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 39. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan,
1: how are things? April Fools. I'm Joshua Hall. Oh my gosh, that was the best prank. And you're Daniel Arneman. I am? Oh. <laughs> and if you are a first time listener, we have now confused the heck out of you for all future shows. I'm confused. <laughs> Dan, have you been to Chelsea, Massachusetts? I don't... Is that near Boston? Yes, sounds that familiar. is across the Mystic River from Boston. It sounds magical. It is. And our beer today is from Mystic Brewery in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And this beer is called, quite simply, Table Beer. Now, is that made from real table? I think I tell that joke every
0: time we have a beer and it's it, called something. I it's say, is it made from real that?
1: Funnier and funnier. Yeah. Every week. You hold up the number of fingers how many times you've heard me tell that joke. So this this is interesting. I saw this in my favorite local beer store. And it says, Mystic Table Beer traces its roots back to a time when water was never an option at the dining table. Sounds like your dining table. Yeah, I don't actually drink a lot of beer at the dining table, but okay, I like it. Uh, beer from 1.2 to 4.5% alcohol by volume was served at the table as well as in the fields in the form of Cezanne. So before you jump all over me, this is not a 1.2% beer. Okay. Actually, like, this is a 4.3% beer. But it says our flavor and texture derived from our house yeast strain. So apparently this brewery really likes to collect natural yeast strains from Massachusetts and use them in their beers. What is the
0: Ben Franklin quote? So I think this is Ben Franklin who said this. And maybe this is why they didn't serve uh, water at the table. He says, In wine there is wisdom. In beer there is freedom. In water there is bacteria. <laughs> so maybe this was a way to have better
1: tasting water yeah there's a practical element i think so to this add a little alcohol it kills some things yeah well i thought this was cool the one funny thing was that this historically was derived you know from the techniques of the commoners beer on the table every night but this was a ten dollar bottle of beer so clearly i was gonna say table wine
0: (laughs) means it's off the bottom shelf and of unknown origin yeah
1: i don't know this may be a crappy beer but it was quite expensive it has a cork in it let's hear it yeah this is a big bottle so this has a champagne-style keep cork. keep it away from your electronics while you're opening yeah, okay. it, if I were you. Oh, yeah. I'm going to take this away from the MacBook. Can it's be a get? very expensive bottle. Wow, that really came off with some uh, force. <laughs> it's
0: about a $2,000 bottle of beer <laughs> if you happen to spill it all over the MacBook. So,
1: listeners, you're not here with me, but that was basically the sensation of opening a bottle of champagne, but the overwhelming smell of beer... <laughs> It came shooting out at me. So that was kind of a weird sensory experience where you expect one thing and something else happens.
0: Only the best here on Hello PhD. So
1: this says it was bottle conditioned, dance. you know what that means? Uh, does that mean they let the yeast grow inside the bottle? That's right. The yeast grew inside the bottle, and that's how the carbonation was added. So instead of CO2 being pumped in after the fact, some residual sugar was left in the beer, and the yeast that were left in the bottle... Were sealed in and ate the sugar and carbonated the beer, and there is a lot of carbonation. You are here getting a lot of foam. You did
0: a very careful pour, but did, you are getting a lot of foam off the top. Sick. Oh yeah,
1: give me the one that's all foam. <laughs> these these Massachusetts yeasts are no joke. So this has a very light color, yeah, um, golden yellow, not golden, not a dark color at all. Yeah, very clear Cheers. yellow. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I got nothing but foam in that drink. (laughs) First first time
0: out? This is great. It actually is quite good. I mean, I did not, I expected this to taste like a Bud Light. Based on the color, based on what was coming out of it, I expected no flavor whatsoever. But it is is really rich. It's good. This is very good. I'm a big fan of this.
1: All right. Well, enough about beer. So, Dan, the topic last week, just to, to remind people, or if you happen to miss it, was we discussed an article that was published in The Guardian about whether or not research advisors should be held accountable for poor mentorship. And that must have really struck a nerve with a lot of our listeners because there was quite an abundance of feedback this week on social media, on Twitter, email, Reddit. Some people may describe the feedback as huge. 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 I I don't know how to say it. So what I thought we could do, and, you know, this is one thing I realized when I listened back to the show last week. I feel like we did a good job of kind of framing the issue, the importance of that relationship between the research mentor and the trainee. I I find we always
0: do a great job.
1: (laughs) Hardly worth calling attention to. <laughs> it's true. We did a standardly awesome job of framing the issue. But the one thing I felt thought... we like, failed. Yeah, go we, ahead. You know, I was sort of left wanting more because I think what we didn't have time to do was then to... If the answer is yes, we do wish that research advisors were held accountable or at least mechanisms were in place to Im- help them improve as mentors... What does that look like? What would we actually do? What types of things would would actually be in place to make that happen? And we got a lot of really great responses on social media this week, some really great ideas. And I thought on this week's show, let's just talk about that. Let's really look practically at that question. If we want our research advisors to be better mentors, how do we do that?
0: Yeah, we didn't have any
1: great ideas last week, apparently, but all of you did. So thank you. Now we'll share those. All right. If I could sum up, most of the conversation that that happened this week, it would probably be in one of two camps. Uh, Well, I actually would say about 25% of the feedback was similar to Cactus in a Hat on Reddit. And so... I don't know why I'm assuming cactus in a hat is a he. It may be a she as well. Uh, could just be a cactus with a hat on. <laughs> you, you have no idea. Uh, so to the question, should research advisors be held accountable for mentorship? Yes, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, there was a lot of,
0: I think, pessimism that there was any way forward. And, and I understand that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You look at the way that academia is structured, and you don't see a lot of examples of people doing a good job at changing that system. hmm and so, yeah, I could see looking
1: at it and saying, I wish it would happen, yeah, but and, there's no way it's going to. And there's been a lot of history in That's academia right. and how graduate school training has happened. So I think there's the tendency to have this sort of defeatist attitude, like, well, this is just how it's always been. This is how it's always going to be. But one thing that I got out of this, Dan, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this, is there actually is some movement in a positive direction on this mentorship front. There actually are a lot of people that are having these conversations, including some people in positions to make change. So let's just assume that we're living in a world here for the next half an hour or so. In a world. (laughs) In a world where we are in charge of how things happen. Okay, I like where you're going. And we're going to pretend like us, the Hello PhD community, we were tasked with uh, improving mentorship. And so what would be our suggestions? And so let's just take that vantage point as we jump into this discussion. Perfect. I'd like to live in that world. Okay. So I think to sum this up from the camp who says, yes, mentors should be held accountable. Tenure committees often consider funding and publication, but they don't typically consider mentorship. All right. So I think one thing we could do sort of, I guess, a first recommendation would be to somehow tie a metric that's related to mentorship to the tenure process. Although it's also acknowledged that, like we talked about last week, something like Rate My Professor, which may work well for undergraduate courses, doesn't really work so well. That model doesn't work so well for graduate advisors or postdoc advisors because there may only be one or two grad students per advisor, and there would be no way to hold anonymity in that situation. So so yeah, Dan, I think our first recommendation would be we need built-in ways to collect and deliver feedback to research advisors and have some mentoring metric that's somehow tied to tenure and promotion. One comment that we got from Kenneth Gibbs on Twitter said we could learn from fields like business where feedback is common and valued. And Dan, you're, you're out of the academic world now. You're in the business world. Do you see that to be true? Yeah,
0: there there's something called a 360 review. And so what happens is if if there's somebody in the organization that wants to maybe move up into a leadership position or needs to get some feedback about how their leadership is going, they will bring in a third party. And that third party person will go ask a series of questions to um, a group of people that works for that that leader. So you'll go to their um, some of their employees, you'll go to their peers in the organization, you'll talk to their boss. and so it's called three sixty because you're you're finding out how they're interacting within the organization. Kind of a complete picture of how they interact with everyone. That's the idea. And, and this this consultant or third party asks these series of questions and they're standardized, and then they will sort of summarize the feedback and take it to uh, both that leader and that person's boss usually. Um, so it's it's anonymous. Um, you're you're collecting the feedback, but you're not saying, Jim hates your guts and doesn't want to work with you anymore. But you're, you're saying, I've talked to these people and the themes I'm getting out are, you know, you need to control your temper in meetings because, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll work with that person to help them work through it. So that's one way you could actually collect this feedback by directly talking to students and other faculty in the department.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And And it's important to note that the 360 evaluation, I don't know if it's available everywhere, but I know uh, human resource departments at a lot of universities offer this. At UNC, I've actually taken part in a 360 evaluation for a peer colleague. And for a faculty member, you know, you might talk to their department chair, you might talk to other colleagues in the department, as well as postdocs, graduate students in the lab, maybe even undergraduates who work with that individual, right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's totally possible. Usually they pick five or seven people. So um, it's, it's a really great way to collect feedback. Although I don't even know that you, you have to get to that level because I bet you could observe just from the numbers how many graduate students are joining this lab, how many are rotating, how many are finishing, how many are leaving. If you've got, a, if you've got three or four or 10 years on your record, you may be able to just measure the effects of mentorship just by observing.
1: Yeah, I think that is true. If
0: every graduate student in the lab leaves the graduate program in tears,
1: probably a good sign that the mentorship isn't working. You know, Dan, I think this sort of 360 format could fit nicely into a tenure process, right? That this could be a nice component or the tenure, you know, when you're up for tenure, that would be kind of a good time in your career to to do a 360 because you've probably, you know, been in the department long enough that people kind of got a feel for who you are and what your, you know, style is as a colleague and as a mentor and as a subordinate in all of your roles.
0: Yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there, Josh, there may not be a very obvious link in tenure committee's minds between mentorship and productivity. And maybe they need that link established before they say, we actually do care about this thing and we're going to put effort and money into measuring it. If they don't believe there's any link or impact, then
1: why bother including it in the 10-year review process? Well, one thing that, that surprised me a little bit, Dan, was we got some feedback on Reddit, actually, for, from a couple faculty members. Oh, faculty members on Reddit? You better get to work. <laughs> Shouldn't you be mentoring? <laughs> well, well, these, these comments, they actually weighed in on this issue. And I found this to be, be kind of heartening. So, so one comment was from a, a chemistry, biomedical engineering professor. And, and they said, tenure committees absolutely do consider mentorship, though perhaps not as much as funding and publication rates. Source... Have been on tenure committees. So apparently, wherever this individual is, that is certainly something that factors in. And you know, I would think, well, maybe that's an n equals one. But then another comment we got from a PI said, Our tenure review process does not include only funding and publication. The committee asks current and former students to write letters of rec for our tenure review. We have no say in who they ask. So indeed, our coworkers and employees are interviewed in a way. Also, the number of times our students have published is weighted more heavily than the number of times we have published, which seems to speak heavily to how well we have mentored our students. That is, if I publish through collaboration with another lab and my students aren't involved, that counts a lot less help- than helping my own students get papers. So I thought that was pretty
0: great. That's a clever way of, of getting to it. You You measure the productivity of the student. If the students aren't productive, presumably they're missing some aspect
1: of their training that they need to be successful yeah and i wish i knew i wish i knew where this faculty member was because i think whatever institution this is really has some great ideas and maybe doing this right and could be could serve as a model for yeah, others if you could if you could go demonstrate that that
0: department is more successful uh, more productive comes up with better research uh, that might lead some other departments to look at the same
1: ideas but, you know, meanwhile, at other places, Dan, some comments we got. Uh, one came from a postdoc. In my instance, I was very lucky that my PI was held accountable, was not tenured. However, it was after the damage was already, had already happened in terms of hindering two grad students' educations. It is also important to note, however, that they had trouble in obtaining grant funding and writing. Having two students walking away from programs were really just putting the nails in the coffin. Unfortunately, however, they were able to find another position.
0: Yeah, so this is that that revolving door of bad PI, bad mentor, bad advisor uh, does actually get kicked out of the one system, but they can walk right into the next system.
1: Yeah, and that is unfortunate and maybe you know maybe what this speaks to is contrasting, you know, this story with the the PI's comments that we just talked about that there can be a huge range here from institution to institution in how much emphasis is put on mentoring. So I guess one thing to say is if you're a graduate student or postdoc, maybe do your homework. One resource that came in uh, from a different postdoc was something I had not heard of, the Future of Research group. And apparently what this, at least part of what this group does is they grade institutions on things like mentorship, support, career development opportunities, benefits, etc. And so I guess the idea being If you were looking for a postdoc or a grad school, you could make a decision with all the data for that institution. And so I took a look at this resource and it looks really interesting. So I don't know, maybe this might be another resource you could go to where people are starting to take these things into account.
0: Yeah, having a that third party look at how schools are doing is a great idea.
1: Okay. So, you know, first recommendation was somehow building in feedback at some regular interval, maybe part of the tenure process. And it sounds like that's not a complete pipe dream because it actually People appears doing to be happening in yeah. places. So maybe one thing we could do is at your institution speaking up and you know saying, hey, this is something that happens elsewhere. What do you think about this happening here? Who would they talk to, to, to bring that about? I don't even know who you, the ombudsman? Yeah. You know, I think if you have a decent relationship with your department chair or the director of graduate studies in your department, mentioning that to them might be useful, especially um, if you happen to have a graduate student organization, it might be useful, or if you're a postdoc, a postdoc association, talking to the leaders in that organization about some of these things that are happening elsewhere and collectively as a group, you could formally bring these suggestions to the powers that be department chairs, Um, or if you have a dean that's very active in training, that would be another person to consult don't go to your bad PI and be like, so, have, have we talked about your mentorship and your tenure review process? Yeah, I You're think, terrible. I think at most institutions, there's at least that one person who's in leadership, whether they're at a dean level or a department chair level or a DGS level, who you can tell is an advocate for trainees, for students, for really getting the educational mission of the university right. And when you figure out who... That person is, even if it's just one person, that's the advocate you're looking for. That's really the person you want to probably get the ball rolling on some of these things.
0: Yeah, and and we shouldn't um, underestimate how difficult it will be to change a tenure review process. Universities invest a lot of money to to bring in new faculty and to provide space, and uh, you can't just change the rules in the middle of their career and say, oh, actually, sorry, you've been publishing all these papers and getting all these grants. Now we've decided we're going to do a a mentorship review. So I think it would be a slow change, but I think it is possible.
1: Yeah, and at the very very least, I mean, one of the the comments was there seemed to be this regular um, interviewing of graduate students or maybe a 360-style evaluation maybe that everyone goes through every two or three years. So mention 360 evaluation. That might be a useful place to start. We should have one on this show. i have some feedback for you. <laughs> we'll consult all of the people at the different levels of uh, LOPHD of this operation. The yes. sound guy, the recording guy. The guy at the bottle shop where i get the beer. Yep. Uh, okay, so the second recommendation, Dan, has to do with actually providing resources for faculty to get better at mentoring. Are you implying that this is a skill that can be learned? Yeah, absolutely. Just born as a nurturer. Absolutely. I think mentoring can definitely be learned, especially if we operate from the point of view that the vast majority of faculty are decent human beings, right? I believe that's true. And if you think about how you become a faculty member, you were good in the lab, right? You were a successful grad student. You were a productive postdoc. You could publish papers. Maybe you could get grants. But how much... Was your ability to manage or mentor taken into account when you were hired as a faculty member? Probably not a lot. Probably not a lot. And you very unlikely had any training whatsoever in managing people. So in a lot of ways, we're not equipping faculty in a way to be successful mentors. And so the second recommendation would be provide those opportunities for faculty, both new and old, to really hone their craft as far as being a good mentor. And so this is something that came up on Twitter. Michael Johnson mentioned maybe more mentoring initiatives from the institutional level. And I happen to know Michael is a new faculty member at Arizona University. So, you know, I think we have evidence here of faculty members who are interested in this type of thing. And so, you know, the discussion that went back and forth on Twitter was, okay, well, let's say institutions offer mentor training. Who's going to come to that? It's probably going to be... There. All the really nice people who are kind-hearted and sweet. Yeah, right. It's probably the people that don't need to be there. The right? other guy is down
0: yelling at his grad <laughs> students. He doesn't have time to come to your stupid <laughs>
1: mentorship training. No, that's absolutely true. And That actually led to a funny conversation about how many Panera sandwiches you would have to provide as incentive to get faculty to come. Dude, are faculty members incentivized by Panera? I know grad students are. I don't think you ever lose that, but I'm not sure. Okay. I've done some... Free food. Yeah, you know, I've done some events that I'd really needed faculty present for, and I serve lunch, and that usually greatly increases the attendance by faculty. So I don't think you ever lose that. Okay. Yeah. Once a graduate student, always a graduate student. You're out of grad school. Do you like a free lunch? Yeah, I do. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So I think there's a couple really great things uh, that are happening on this front as well. And so the University of Wisconsin-Madison actually has some NIH funding to start this thing called the Mentor Training Corps. Like a core facility, or yeah. like the Marine Corps.
0: <laughs> like One, a, two, three, four. I love the mentor training corps.
1: <laughs> Very nice. Uh, no, this is like a like a core facility for mentoring, and in a lot of ways, this is exactly what we've been talking about, and so we can link this on the show notes. But the pages or the information is divided into resources for mentors and mentees, and another important thing that. They do at Wisconsin in this mentor training corps is they not only provide resources for mentors to get better, but they also have a training curricula so that institutions can implement this mentor training at their own university. And this is something we actually instituted at our university last year. And the initial thought was just like what the conversation on Twitter was well, well we could do this, but who's really going to come? You know, we operated from this mindset that oh, well, faculty aren't going to want to come to that. But
0: that's not true. Yeah, I think if you're thrown into a situation where you're being asked to mentor people Mm -hmm.
1: and you know you're not doing a great job at it, you might actually respond to the offer for help. Yeah, and that's what we found, that a good number of faculty, and not just the newest faculty, but faculty at all levels, really had an interest in getting some support in how to better manage and mentor their trainees. And so, you know, one one neat thing that happened, this was just a couple months ago, I had a meeting with a faculty member who was participating in this second round of the mentor training, and I asked her, I said, what led you to take time out of your busy schedule to do this mentor training? And one of her colleagues in the department, who was actually a more seasoned faculty member that that she respected, had gone through it the first time and told her how great it was and actually recommended it and based on his stamp of approval based on his recommendation, she decided to sign up. And so that was very encouraging to me that you know we shouldn't underestimate faculty's interest in improving as mentors. And I think if enough people do this, if enough faculty do this, it starts to improve the overall environment.
0: Well, and then it becomes cultural. Then it becomes peer pressure. You're the only one who didn't go to mentor core?
1: Yeah. (laughs) And if you're a new faculty member who comes in, right, maybe it's just what people do and you don't think twice about it part of the package. So I think these were two really solid recommendations. Um, Finally, some content out of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) There's, There's mentorship metrics that are important for faculty to meet. Uh, But then also making sure institutions are providing opportunities for their faculty to grow as mentors. But I I would be remiss, Dan, if I didn't say there were some counterpoints that were brought up by a few individuals. I do like counterpoints. And and one of those has to do with the fact that the mentor-mentee relationship, is a two-way street. And so one comment came from a faculty member. And so what this individual said, this faculty member said was, don't get me wrong. I know of plenty of examples of bad PhD supervision, including one that resulted in disciplinary action for negligent supervision. But I also know of plenty of PhD students who had nobody but themselves to blame, whether they would admit it or not. And and actually, even a PhD student in developmental biology had a similar sentiment, and that was PIs should be held accountable for bad mentorship. But the flip side is that most trainees don't know the difference between bad mentorship and trainee is not a good fit with research.
0: Yeah, I mean, this one does speak to me a little bit. I'm sure that I tested my PI's patience past endurance. And and what a person is is good at in terms of mentorship um, when things are kind of running smoothly versus what happens when you do get into this situation where it's it, it, their bad personality fit between the two, or the the trainee just isn't right for science or for the lab or whatever the the result is. Um, I think it can make a, a very nice person into a very bad
1: mentor. I think I think that's absolutely true. To finish this up, I want to end this with a quote from a from a PI, and I think this really summarizes well that you know we focus on situations sometimes that are really bad and those are out there, but there's a lot of situations that are kind of in the middle. So this comment was, I'm a PI. I finished my PhD years ago. My supervisor wasn't perfect and I can't think of many or any examples of perfect supervisors, but the problem isn't a binary issue. 99% of supervisors aren't perfect or abusive. They have strengths and weaknesses. Maybe they're good at setting targets, reviewing material, and ensuring on-time submission, but they're not so great at facilitating teaching experience. Or maybe they're lovely and very emotionally supportive and great for tackling research questions, but they're horribly disorganized and don't push the student through the various milestones and edits to ensure smooth completion. The key issue with PhD supervision is that it is a very personal relationship between two individuals, and sometimes it's as simple as a bad fit. At that point, the department, supervisor, and student all need to work together to figure out the best outcome. Additional supervisors, change of PI, withdrawal, whatever. I choose whatever, please. Whatever. For $200. And I think that was that was the conclusion that that several people weighed in and said. I really liked this last comment by a grad student who who said the department accepts a graduate student and are responsible for their education just as much as their assigned advisor PI. And I think a lot of what this boils down to, Dan, is if mentorship is going to get better, if faculty are going to be given the tools to succeed at mentorship. That really is going to have to come at the level of these departments that the faculty are swimming around in. Basically,
0: it takes a village. And, and to, to pull in the last comment, it is such an intense relationship. Uh, a PI or an advisor and a student, um, it, it's going to have problem, like any like a marriage, like a friendship, like whatever. It's going to have high times and low times, and it's so close that you are going to bring out the best and the worst in each other. Um, And then is there
1: a community, a department around that, that can help sort it out when things go south? Yeah, and, you know, it's worth noting, I think we need to do a full episode on this sometime, but that's one reason why you have a committee. With graduate training, I think it's actually very smart that at some point it was deemed that the way this works is it's not your PI that decides when you're done, but it's this thesis committee made up of other individuals. Yeah, you could get into a very, very... A destructive situation in a kind of codependent relationship if it's just one person's decision. Absolutely. And I've seen so many times students who don't utilize the members of their committee enough when they get in tough times, whether that's just tough times with their research project or to help them navigate some of these issues with their mentor, because there can be a lot of resources right there, a lot of advocacy right there in your committee. Yeah. And, and that definitely helped me.
0: Great advice to, to rely on that group.
1: Yeah, so I would advise everybody out there listening, wherever you are, this is just the start of some really important conversations. So what I hope we can do is continue these conversations with your peers in the lab, with the other graduate students, postdocs, research technicians, and even your your faculty mentors, um, because I think we all want the research environment to be the best that it can be. So I hope this will be a starting point for conversations you have where you are. All right, Josh, are you ready for an etymology puzzle? I am, Dan. I feel like I have been living in this world of etymology puzzles. It has opened my eyes to different parts of the world that I would not have How do you mean? Well, so yesterday I was at the zoo with my kids. My wife, uh, my kids are on spring break this week. And so we were at the North Carolina Zoo, which was lovely. And we walked by Lemur Island. Uh Uh-oh. And so I, of course, immediately thought, actually, I said out loud to my wife, lemurs the ghosts of madagascar there it is (laughs) and she looked at me like i was nuts (laughs) spoiler alert for last week if people didn't listen to that episode that's right so i love these etymologies i feel like uh they are providing richness to my daily life they're gonna hire you at that zoo to do the voiceover (laughs)
0: for their walking tour oh lemur did you know that's based on the word (laughs) lemulee's Or something is that <laughs> really, right? That may not even be right. <laughs> really close, really close. Doesn't so, matter.
1: Uh, what do you have for this week,
0: Dan? Okay, so the clue last week was sent in by Megan Bond, uh, and the clue was this equine sea monster helps you remember Greek mythology and find your way to lab. A, it was a multi-part complex clue. I love the
1: sound of this of this clue. Okay. Did but you have I got any guesses? N- I don't. This was too hard. I kept thinking about seahorses.
0: Yeah, so that is, that is the thread you needed to follow to get the right answer. So well, that you- I got stuck there. Okay, good enough. So, so seahorse is the animal we were looking for, but it comes from the genus Hippocampus. No. So it sure does. The genus is Hippocampus. Hippos is a Greek word meaning horse, um, and campos means monster or sea monster. So way back way back even in the fourth century bc the Wayback machine the Wayback machine there were representations of this it's almost like a mer horse so it's got a fish's tail and a horse's body but you'll see this represented like pulling neptune's chariot uh through the water so there's your reference to greek mythology but uh there was this this idea of this half horse half fish and it was a sea monster so when someone discovered the uh, the seahorse, the fish that you're thinking of It's got this long snout and this kind of like curly fish tail Okay, so that looks like this yeah. a Tiny, tiny version of that monster And so in the um, Late 1500s Early 1600s uh, That name was applied to that fish The seahorse hippocampus So that's where we got to that part Now you're wondering So yeah, I'm
1: wondering I've, nev- I've heard the word hippocampus yep. many times But, but not, not in reference to a seahorse Not at all It's in the brain Yeah, it sure is. So it turns out that
0: this little squiggly piece of your limbic system happens to be shaped like a seahorse, the hippocampus. It's involved in short-term and long-term memory and spatial navigation. So I don't know whether the fish was named for I guess the fish had to be named first. I don't know when it was named. Then they named the the brain structure. I'm going to put up a picture and you will see that these two things do actually have the same shape.
1: Yeah, this picture is pretty cool. If you're squeamish, I guess you should have avoid it or if you're afraid of if you don't like dissected brain parts ec- <laughs> equine or, sea or monsters fish. yeah yeah fair enough
0: uh so our winner this week is jonathan from stony brook so congratulations to
1: jonathan jonathan from stony brook thanks for playing stony brook that's in new york i believe the mascot for stony brook university i just looked this up is wolfie the sea wolf? is that like a seahorse i don't know <laughs> <laughs> wolfie the sea wolf. somebody please write in and tell us what a seawolf is okay fantastic
0: Thank you to Jonathan and for everybody who played. And I will give you next week's clue. Are you ready? I'm ready. This botanical substance makes the springtime landscape look like it was dusted with finely milled flour. I'll read it one more time. This botanical substance makes the springtime landscape look like it was dusted with finely milled flour. I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer... Email it to puzzle at phd.com I will randomly select the winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card.
1: Fantastic. Dan, I feel like we really got somewhere this week. Finally. I mean, we left him kind of hanging last week, didn't we? I just feel like we're charting the future of graduate education here on okay. the podcast. Having all the important conversations. I think we are changing the world. Well, not only did I enjoy this stimulating conversation, but... This is a dang fine beer, if I do say so myself. Very, very good. Nice choice, sir. I will try another table beer sometime. Yeah, we will do it. If you have Mystic Brewery table beer, I can recommend it. So if you have some thoughts on how to improve science training, we always want to hear them. And you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or get to us on the Facebook page. And as you saw today... We may very well use it on the show. We will steal your ideas and report them as our own.
0: If you like the show, be sure to go to iTunes and leave us a review. That lets other people find out about
1: it. Dan, have a good week, and I will see you next time. See you next week.